1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am in Tucson, Arizona today. In our studio in Washington, D.C., we have Edward Luce of the Financial Times and David Sanger of the New York Times. And in California, we have Corey Shockey of Stanford University. On our last episode, we talked a little bit about the situation in Washington, the extraordinary uh, political developments, uh, and uh, the the parallel stories of personality. Uh, but obviously, what makes these especially important to deep staters, the nerds on the deep state radio listenership, uh, are what's going on in the outside world. How do these things affect us? How are they likely to affect us all? Um, And I want to start, as we have in a a number of episodes, with North Korea. And the reason I do is that Bob Corker said, you know, we're on the verge of World War Three, or we could be. And uh, many, many people seem to be getting a vibe that the president is very serious about conflict. He's doubled down on this in the past couple of days. Uh, saying that only one thing will work in North Korea and obviously not meaning negotiation Um, uh, and having his team go out there and back it up by saying that, yes, he means military options when he says only one thing will work. Um, And so we're at a a, a precarious place here. And I want to put it into some context. David, you used to cover uh, the Koreas for The Times uh, and you did so back in the 90s when things got pretty hairy. Uh, In fact, they... I guess the situation in the 90s was as hairy as things got since the cessation of hostilities in the 50s. Where do you think we are compared to that? Well, we're in a
2: somewhat different place than we were in 1994, David. And let's – for readers who weren't um, listening to the Deep State Radio podcast in 1994 because we hadn't invented podcasts yet, let's just remind them what that was all about. Uh, North North Korea at that moment uh, had um, uh, threatened to leave the nuclear nonproliferation treaty, did not yet have enough fuel for more than a weapon or two. But was planning to throw out uh, the few inspectors they had and basically take the plutonium that was coming out of their reactor and put it off in a place where we couldn't find it. And President Clinton's fear was that once that happened, we would lose control of their ability to make a nuclear uh, weapon. Uh, Jimmy Carter – Uh, went out uh, without authorization from the White House, dealt directly with Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current leader, uh, came up with an agreement that Clinton himself was quite skeptical about. But in the end, it managed to forestall for five or six years their ability to go make progress. So where are we today? Today, we have a North Korea that is more like Pakistan in the late 90s uh, or early part of uh, this century. It has conducted six nuclear tests. It has the um, makings or actual weapons for 20 to 60 bombs depending on who you believe and a missile capability that if it can't take you to Los Angeles now, we'll, everyone assesses will be able to in a year or two. The only thing they're missing is the ability right now to have the um, warhead survive reentry into the atmosphere. So. In 94, we had a potential military conflict over their – the thought that they would have breakout. Today, we have potential military conflict over the fact that they are right on the verge of a fully operative nuclear arsenal and that's why in some ways today is more fraught because even if you froze their program exactly where it was, which is what Clinton managed and Carter managed in 94 you would be freezing them as an established
1: nuclear power. And that's the best scenario. Well, this is one of the things that, you know, keeps coming up here. Um uh and I just again for to provide a little bit of historical context, Corey, I'd like to go to you very briefly and 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 this is, you know, let's, sort of keep this going so we can get to some new ground. But Corey was a um, young child when all of that happened. I just wanted to know. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But of course, Corey served in the Pentagon when she was a young child. So she does have some special perspective on all of this. But, um, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, the Twitter and chief keeps saying is, you know, all, the past 25 years of policies didn't work. And we've discussed this here before, but I, I think it's it's worth underscoring. The past 25 years of policies slowed the development of the North Korean nuclear program, contained the development of the North Korean nuclear program, and kept us from going to war in the course of that. Since Trump took over with his new policy approach, the North Koreans have become immeasurably more dangerous, and we've become ever closer to conflict. And our allies are more worried about conflict. It's not just, you know, the American media getting, you know, hyperventilating over, you know, a Trump tweet. Isn't isn't it, you know, arguable that the Trump policies so far has have actually been the worst policies of the past twenty five years?
0: Well, um, I'm inclined to think that, but I'm made a uh I'm made cautious in my own judgment by the fact that I have twice now in the last few months had former Defense Secretary Bill Perry tell me that he thinks that they are doing the right thing by turning the heat up and that it has created the first opportunity since 1999 for serious negotiations over the Iranian nuclear program. So the fact that Bill Perry thinks that is is causing me to second guess my own judgment. My own view, though, is that the reason no American president in the last twenty five years has been willing to take military action against the North Korean uh, nuclear programs is that for the last seventy years, Seoul, South Korea has sat within rocket and artillery range of North Korea. And the North Korean government is, has these 70 years been quite intent on threatening uh, the safety of South Korea. So, yeah, no American president has moved forcefully because North Korea appears to have been deterred for these 70 years by a robust threat by us. That any attack by North Korea on South Korea, the United States, Japan, or any of our other allies will result in military retaliation that the government of North Korea will not survive. Right. So an asymmetric threat against the regime of North Korea in retaliation for any uh, attack on us or our allies. I still think that's the right threat. It hasn't deterred them from crossing the nuclear threshold, but it has deterred them from using nuclear or conventional weapons against us or our allies. And I still think that's the most credible threat we can make. I also think it's the most responsible threat we can make. And I'm deeply worried that President Trump is making all sorts of other threats and that the administration can't seem to get its message straight. On where the actual line is that we're trying to draw with them.
1: Well, let let, let me pivot slightly off of that. Ed to 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 a bigger question. I, I always like to address bigger questions, to Ed, because with your accent, it sounds <laughs> kind of voice of God. You know, and it becomes. It's sure it's, it's like not here's... the evil
3: <laughs> accent in a Stephen King sort of horror, horror
1: <laughs> make of one the... of his books. Yeah well exactly so but, but but Corey gets to another point that goes beyond the north korea point since those during that 70 year period the international system whether people want to admit it or not has had as kind of a tent pole something holding it up the the two things one is the apparent will of the world's most powerful nation to support that system um, and the credibility of that nation in making commitments to it. Um, in other words, if the U.S. didn't commit to the UN, or if the U.S. didn't commit to the IMF, or the U.S. didn't commit to the defense of Europe, or the U.S. and it, then the system wouldn't have worked. But but it was not just the commitment; people had to believe in the commitment. People had to believe the U.S. would follow through. And now. Um, The president of the United States has, over the course of eight months, said explicitly, I will not honor necessarily the agreements of past leaders. Um, He has gotten into direct fights with multiple allies, and he has sought to portray himself as incredibly erratic so that those allies don't know whether or not they can depend on him. And so to me, this sort of pulls the tentpole out from the international system and in many ways is more dangerous even than the one-on-one confrontation with North Korea, which after all is much smaller and who in a conflict, you know, we would certainly be able to prevail, although the costs would be gigantically high.
3: Yeah, I I, I agree with the direction your question is. is leading me, but let me just sort of go back to the system that that trump um, uh, before Trump came along um, I, I I agree that the United States created the system and for the most part sustained it but i don 't think we should underestimate the impact of george w bush 's war on Iraq um, and the principles on which that was declared well the multiple bases on which uh, on which that war went ahead um, and the damage that did to American uh, standing in the world and to the credibility of the U.S. upheld uh, world order way before Trump considered running for the presidency, and I think Obama got elected in part by repudiating um, uh, much of George Bush's um, record, but then himself, you know, in in response to uh, the different world. Um, One where others are rising um, and one where democracy promotion and universal universal values had been sort of tarnished by George Bush's, I think, gross misuse of those principles, um, where himself, you know, um, began a period of retrenchment in American power. Um, And many of the questions we're now asking with far more urgency under Trump, because Trump is Trump, because of the psychology uh, the very dangerous and volatile psychology of this man. Many of those questions we were debating in calmer tones um, uh, for, for, for the last eight years. Um, so along comes Trump. Uh, and it's extremely hard to have you know, imagined that somebody of this character – would have been parachuted into this situation. And I share all your forebodings uh, and, even, and Bob Corker's, you know, even while the World War III forebodings about what could, w- w- in worst case scenarios, be the consequences of Trump. But I do believe we are in a broader context of relative U.S. decline, uh, the rise of others, the challenge of American hegemony. And this is a test any president... Um, in the White House would would be uh, would be confronted with. It's a tragedy that Trump is is, is now the president who has to respond to this because I don't think he would. I don't think his, he would pass the IQ test on this conversation. Um, but uh, it's important to remember he didn't create the North Korean crisis. Um, You know, he didn't create the backlash against uh, uh, um, the democratic model that we've seen, the sort of democratic recession we've seen in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, He didn't create the 2008 crisis, a financial meltdown, the kinds of things that discredited the West in in general and experts within the West in particular. Um, Trump has just profited in a grotesque way from all of this.
2: David, can I, well, I don't you know, know. can I just leap in yeah. to contest for a minute your argument that Trump has made this greatly worse? I think the verbiage has certainly made it worse and has created a sense uh, that this is a very personal conflict between Trump and Kim Jong-un that is a bad thing to do when you are dealing with somebody like Kim Jong-un who, like Donald Trump, prides himself in never backing down. And that. That's why we're worried about this escalatory uh, element to it. But at the same moment, there's a lot of blame to go around here, some with Bill Clinton but certainly with George W. Bush and certainly with Barack Obama for doing exactly what Donald Trump has said, which is kicking this problem down the road. And they've kicked it down the road for a very understandable reason. Every incremental increase in capability that the North Koreans had – Uh, didn't seem worth losing Seoul for all the reasons Corey just laid out. And so every time they came up to the edge of do we let the Koreans – North Koreans do this or not, they went through the same debate and came out the same place. And if you do that for 16 or 24 years consistently, you end up with a nuclear program that looks a lot like the North Korean nuclear program. So I have some sympathy for President Trump when he says that he has been handed here something that previous presidents failed to go deal with. Now then there's a very legitimate question, is a highly confrontational approach where you're not getting out to try to negotiate the way to go deal with this or not. And um, I do agree that you're going to need to escalate in order to de-escalate. You're going to have to put true pressure on them and create some diplomatic openings. What our fear right now is that President Trump is highly inexperienced at that and seems to be disinterested in the diplomacy side of it and Kim Jong-un has never done this on a world scale either. So you have two leaders with virtually no experience in how to negotiate with other powers in the midst of this and that's I think where – what worries me the most about
1: it. Okay. Well, I mean … In the context of North Korea, perhaps that's the case. I think the broader question is, you know, what happens, you know, to Americans standing? How do uh, the institutions we've set up uh, work in a period like this period, particularly if this is the president for some time to come, and he has the views that he has, uh, and he has the credibility that he has, and he has the er- er- you know erratic nature that he has. And I think one of the places that we end up Uh, encountering this, it has to do with Iran, because we now have Trump saying that he will decertify, you know, uh, the the Iranian deal, um, uh, which is not justifiable in the eyes of anybody around the world, the other parties to the deal, or to most of the people apparently in his own administration, um, and, and yet he's going to do it anyway, because he wants to, um, because it's politically expedient. Now he may, you know, as he, as he seems to be doing, you know, then kick this over the Congress because he knows the Congress really isn't going to go and do anything that inflammatory. So he'll get to look like the tough guy and they'll get to look like the weaklings. Um, but it raises a question in the mind of the other parties to that deal about the United States and is the US a worthwhile partner in deals like this and those things take a long-term toll and so while I think we can fix you know that we've got a very special problem in North Korea we've got a broader set of problems internationally we've only got this is a little shorter episode of the of the podcast for a variety of reasons but Corey let me go to you with with that one and just sort of ask what do you think the sort of institutional, international, structural consequences of this kind of a presidency might be? Or are they just limited in the day he leaves, they are reversed?
0: Uh, I hope they are limited to just the day he, to just until he leaves, but it depends on what follows him, right? President Trump is wildly out of bounds of the norms of behavior of an American president, But he is by no means the first American president uh, that foreign leaders have considered unreliable, Uh, right? Like, um, countries like... Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq's Kurds fear that the United States will abandon them, get bored with their problems and abandon them. And the reason they fear that is because we so often do that. So um, I think there is a rich appreciation internationally for the vicissitudes of American interest in global problems. I do think retrenchment is a routine American foreign policy um, activity, right? Whenever we feel that that we have more pressing problems at home or that the cost is uh, wearying of what we are trying to achieve internationally, we do tend to trim our sails. This isn't the first time. The post-Iraq war is not the first time we have made that decision. And, and you know, the, for all of the rightful appreciation that the hard men who came out of World War II get for building international institutions and international cooperation after World War II, that was a very narrowly won set of gains. Um, If Robert Taft instead of Dwight Eisenhower had gotten the Republican nomination in 1952, when attitudes, it strikes me, were not dissimilar from what they were in the United States in 2008, um, we would have had a very different international order. So, so I think it's always a contingent outcome. And we always have to make the argument strongly, consistently, and persuasively that it's in America's interests to support institutions, to help make them effective, to put ourselves out in the world, because it's always better to play on somebody else's playing field than to play a home game when you're talking about national security and we have the great good fortune that very often lots and lots of countries want to help us do that and so President Trump one of President Trump's biggest mistakes is that he is burning so quickly through the goodwill of people who want the same outcomes that we want in the world by the kinds of reckless behavior that that David both David's have have
1: cataloged so extensively. Well, you know, I mean, a couple of the ideas that we've talked about here intersect one of, you know, Trump is, you know, not the sole source of bad American foreign policy. Um, Barack Obama did bad policy. George W. Bush did bad policy. Uh, Bill Clinton did bad policy. Each of them had their strong suits. Each of them had their weak suits. Um, but there is a cumulative effect here, you know, and there is a kind of a twenty-five year arc, you know. With, during the Cold War, we kind of knew what we had to do. We knew what our role was. The philosophy of it was clear. It was us versus them. It was pretty zero sum, um, and it was existential. And since then, we've been a kind of in the wilderness. We've been adrift. You know, it's it's what's the who's the enemy? What's our purpose? What's our role? And this has led us to lash out periodically, retreat periodically, change our worldview periodically, become less engaged in international institutions. And Trump is the worst of it, but he is a continuation of many of these things. And if you take it in that context, it's not just that Trump is bad, but that Trump is a continuation of 25 years of, 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 of erosion or of American leadership or confusion about it, then you know, Corey's kind of sanguine or more, more sanguine view becomes more suspect
3: now. So, I mean, I think uh, uh, that it, uh, I think it was, was it Bismarck? Um, Corey will know, was it Bismarck who said America is lucky? It's, it's, um, Bordered by weak countries in the north and the south, and um, by fish in the, uh, to the east and the west,
1: uh, and, and the United
3: States can, uh, it, you know, it can withdraw from coming, the world. Coming from someone bordered by fish exclusively, indeed. I, I, no, we, but you know, our fishing quote: we have we have regained control over our fishing. Quote. We've taken back control over our fish. Um, the the degree to which America can <laughs> uh, prolong um, its uh, lack of certainty about what, how it should engage with this changing world, I think is far greater than for most countries, including mine, whether it you know, thinks it's controlling its fish or not. Uh, America can drift and uh, it can stumble um, and, you know, it can nap um, Quite uh, for quite long periods of time without feeling the kinds of consequences that, say, you know, uh, a Singapore or a Denmark, you know, or 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 larger countries would feel because they're more integrated, um, they're living more in more dangerous neighborhoods. Um, So I I I agree with your arc that Trump is just a a, a, um, he comes in the context of an America that hasn't really made up its mind what to do with the post. A polar moment, and uh, my my great fear is that it's going to continue not to make up its mind, or or um, to the degree it does make up its mind, um, it will be in the wrong direction. The ones we've been discussing about Trump, we haven't mentioned trade yet, but I see a logic here of at some point Trump saying, okay, when we when we lose our uh, appeal at the WTO and China will appeal all kinds of things once the decisions start coming through. Uh, we'll pull out of the WTO. They're already not nominating appellate judge- judges to the appellate court. Um, so that there are there are decisions that are fairly easy to foresee that Trump is on the track of taking towards taking that are deeply damaging to America's national interest and and to the global order, um, but not but he's not you know a, a Deus ex machina. He's not just sort of parachuted in from out of space. This has been brewing in American politics for a while.
2: There's an isolationist trend that we all discussed at length when. President Trump was running as a candidate. Because if you listen to him then, it was all about withdrawing behind American borders. That's what the wall was all about. That's what the immigration policies were all about. That's what the trade policies were all about. And that's what the I don't understand what we're doing in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq was all about. What's interesting is President is that when confronted with the possibility that America would lose influence because it pulled back, he has usually decided without much strategy to stay out there. Thus, an Afghan strategy that is all about remaining there but with no real sense that he can convey about what our strategic objective is. A North Korean policy that is all about if you threaten us, we will destroy your country but very little discussion about what a post North Korea, Northeast Asia would look like or, you know, what unification would look like or what the Chinese role would look like. So he's had exceptions to his pull back to the borders rule, but we have not been able so far to discern a Trump doctrine about when you go intervene.
1: Well, (laughs) Trump doctrine, I mean, that requires the notion that Trump has somehow – Thought in a coherent way about how he would behave yes, in any that true is ex- situation. That is exactly what it requ- would require, David. And and there's no <laughs> there's no sign there's no sign that he's ever had a thought of any. Th- but, of, but you, you know, will
2: anything. have a Trump national security strategy that will get published that he will have had to sign off on that is being drafted right now within the NSC. Now, whether or not that means anything, whether he has absorbed it, whether he actually believes in it, we'll only know as we watch him execute it. And it will probably be about as worthwhile as every other national security strategy we've had. But there is an effort within the NSC to actually regularize
1: this into a document. Well, I mean, that's because they do that all the time. And those documents gradually over the time have become more and more forgettable and unimportant. You know, they become this kind of laundry list. Uh, And that's because there is no central organizing principle. Uh, And the problem with Trump is the central organizing principle and every single one of his thoughts is him, which isn't actually relevant uh, (laughs) in these these cases. Um, But, you know, Ed, I think you bring up another point, because if you're looking for a pattern. There's actually more of a pattern on the trade front than there is elsewhere because of TPP, because of NAFTA, because of his statements about the South Korea deal, um, uh, because of, you know, where they're going after trade enforcement and so forth. He is kind of systematically waging a war against past deals. He talks a game about future deals that he can make them. But he's, he's, you know, in some ways this is kind of the most clear manifestation of bannonism of trying to blow up the institutions of uh that 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 we see anywhere and you know perhaps it it's carrying over if you take the jcpoa if you say we can't negotiate in other deals but you know if it if if you talk about what he's done on NATO but but trade has really been a telltale area hasn't it
3: It has. And I think one of the interesting things, say, with the NAFTA pledge that he would withdraw the U.S. from NAFTA um, is that initially we all got reassured the adults were taking over and there were people, even Lighthizer, who's, as you know, a a long running trade skeptic, um, that they were, you know, they were going to coach Trump in the the sort of uh, messy realities of of the world. Um, But the direction in which it's going is actually more the Peter Navarro, um, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's first instincts direction, partly because Mexico and Canada are not going to roll over in these negotiations. They're coordinating with each other. Christian Freeland, and Canada's foreign minister, is doing a really brilliant job at cutting off. Um, at cutting so, off.
1: Does, does this have anything to do with the fact that she's the only foreign minister who used to work for the Financial
3: Times? And she's the only female involved. Um, so you know, there are, she's and over, more importantly successes. used to be Ed's boss. She, she <laughs> used to be Bingley. The, 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 I have no, you know, no Canadian political aspirations. She's not going to have, have any impact on my future career. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but it, much as I'd love to be, you know, finance minister of Canada, I've actually, I almost fell asleep before finishing that sentence. But sorry, to, to, to get, much as I'd love to be involved in worthwhile trade initiatives on behalf of Ottawa, I, I, um, I have no percentage <laughs> in praising Christopher Freeland, um, But they're doing a very good job coordinating Mexico and Canada um, and, and shutting off, as I say, some of the more outrageous Trump demands um, at the pass. And I, I think this reaches a sort of pressure cooker point where he's going to try and pull the US from NAFTA. I would predict that.
1: I think you have, I mean, this the the the. the, the, the Discussions they've had on percentages of content and so forth are, are, are non-starters and with, with both sides, also with a lot of folks in the U.S. I think you're right. And I think you know the one thing that you can see is a pattern here of Trump, willingly or unwillingly, lashing out against other people's deals. Um, it's almost the art of undoing deals more than it is actually the art of striking them. I can't think of any new ones that he's struck. That's a what,
0: nice point, David.
1: I'm not I what? I'm gonna write that down. Um, 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 what wh- what do you think, Corey?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I he is um, I, he's good at destruction, he's not good at construction. Um, and that is and a I,
1: nice point, Corey. Oh, that's thank a good you. Point.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that's a I think that's a a, a really good point. Um, I, I, by the way, everybody, I think um, Ed Luce is going to slip out the door here right around now because he's got to go off to get some big scoop, which he will immediately relay to all of us here at Deep State Radio. Um, so I'm going to say goodbye, Ed, so you don't get Good, goodbye. Up. Now
3: I'm going to be putting on my hunting gear and getting my riding whip and heading into Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> but <That's> it's so <laughs> charming. Your people are
1: very charming people, and we love having you here among us.
3: Thank you very um, much.
1: It classes everything up quite a bit, and I, we're going to wrap this all up in four or five minutes anyway. But I did want to be polite and say goodbye to Ed. Um, uh, anyway, Corey, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
2: You know, Ed actually brought his horse right here into the studio. It's a remarkable. Wait, song. wait,
0: wait! I'm the one you guys are supposed to say, "and the horse you rode in on." Yeah. Well, we can, we can, we can.
1: Well, right, we can say that because of Corey Shockey's horse. I hope Cory horse is listening. (laughs)
3: By the way, you know,
1: our animals have been quite inactive, although David Sanger's axolotl, or whatever that is called, um, is more active than the others.
0: I have to say, David's is my favorite of all of them. Like, I love the picture of that weird sea creature with the big hands. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah um, but
0: big
1: you notice trump by the way hasn't gone up to uh, anybody David, that said,
0: i should not have given you that opening yeah. no sooner did the words leave my mouth than i regretted having phrased it that way yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you knew where that so, was headed yeah yeah what was the actual subject we were talking about
2: we were talking about an actual subject I think it had to to do with whether or not uh, uh, Donald Trump was actually going to do permanent damage by withdrawing us from all of these um, different agreements. And I think one of the lessons out of all of this is when you think about how much President Obama and even before him, um, President Bush and President uh, Clinton – had to do by executive action because they did not want to go through the process of dealing with an opposing congress, whether it was the Iran deal or whether it was uh, environmental regulations or whether it was uh, designating national monuments and and other protected lands. You realize that all of this simply invites the next president to go undo it. And there is something that sets the system off. When you have such an inconsistency of um, executive action and that's something we're going to have to go address because in a previous era in American history, these are things that would only be done with congressional buy-in and therefore would be harder to reverse.
0: Yes, I think that's exactly right. I
2: can I you write that down, that- David? He just she just <laughs> said that,
1: again. yes. Yeah. I will even note that when she said that's exactly right, she meant you, David, and not me
0: <laughs> um, that uh, you know, I was thinking as david Rothkopf was um, was listing President Trump's uh, many aggressions against the American political system, a lot of the regulatory stuff, um, was done by executive agreement, uh, by executive order. And as President Trump himself has already learned, executive order is the lazy way to get anything done in American government. We have a government designed by people who thought nothing should be able to be accomplished without building broad political coalitions. And, and while I ed Luce's point about Republicans denying President Obama anything and everything. I think that's true, but it's also true that President Obama in many cases didn't try very hard. Um, imagine, for example, if he had made the compromises on health care that had brought the two Senate, Republican senators from Maine on board, that would have complicated quite a lot the Republican strategy. And so, uh, the Republican strategy that Mitch McConnell had it, of denying everything. If you don't make it possible for the party to have unity, then you win at that game. And presidents, recent presidents have relied much too much on executive orders rather than rolling their sleeves up and engaging in the tawdry, unsatisfying, fundamental and necessary political act of compromise to get enough congressional votes to get stuff passed.
1: Well, you know, I don't like to end any of these discussions. They're always so uplifting and certainly the highlight of my week. And I know they're the highlight of the week of lots of deep state radio nerds out there because we keep Yay, hearing deep about state them. Yay, deep state radio nerds! Um, and we've got a few interesting surprises in store for you deep state radio nerds in the next couple of weeks. So keep tuning in because there's going to be a lot of fun and interesting stuff to report. Um But, you know, I do think Corey's point, as usual, uh, which resonates with David's uh, and resonates with all of our discussions, is worth reflecting on uh, for all of you deep state radio nerds and others who are considering running for president of the United States. And that is governance is hard. You know, getting on TV is easy. Tweeting is easy. Delivering a speech is easy. But the trick With leadership is not knowing where you want to go. The trick with leadership is getting other people to follow you. And that's much tougher. Um, And that seems to be something that is lost not just on Donald Trump, but has been lost on many of his other senior colleagues in government. So you can reflect on that, and you can reflect on how great Corey was and how great David was and how great Ed was and how you will make time next week for more of Deep State Radio. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.